Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Um, I just want to uh, say to all of you this morning that I trust that as we go into the new year that you will experience um, a fresh uh, measure of God's grace. I like these sort of sleepy Sundays. I don't like the minus 5,000 that we're facing this morning, <laughs> but I do like uh, kind of the, the end of the Christmas season. Last night we got home, we were up at Mary Ann's sister's place, and uh, we were playing with the kids up there, and we came home, and our, our grandchildren from Honduras, um, Waki and Ellie, were in their one-piece pajamas. And so I get on the couch, and they go get books, and they kind of climb up on uh, my lap, and uh, there's something I'm just savoring now because in a couple weeks the house is going to be way too quiet. But in those moments, you're able to experience love and communicate love. And there's something in the sweet quietness that may seal a memory for a long time, at least for me, I'm, I'm sure it will. And, uh, you know, this morning in the quietness of post-Christmas, post-New Year's celebrations, my hope is for you that God would seal within your heart a vision for the church that will carry you into the new year with a sense of expectancy. And uh, I say that because, you know, there is uh, right now in our church, right now here in this service, a great deal of heartache and concern and uh, recovery. Uh, really nice to have Linda back worshiping with us today. We've been praying for you and what a great joy to pray with you this morning before we came into the service, but praise God for his hand on you and joy. And we continue to pray for your comfort. Hugo, you are grieving today, and he shared his uh, loss of his 34-year-old cousin in Brazil just a, a few days ago. And brother, as you're serving us this morning, I just pray that God would work in your family, in your extended family it's really hard to be at a distance and be disconnected. There's that whole surreal part of grief. And here's, the, here's what this text is designed to do. This is what Luke's vision is for his gospel. In Luke and in the book of Acts, Luke has and is recounting for us this glorious vision that the church, empowered by the Spirit, is announcing the gospel of the resurrected and reigning Christ and turning the world on its head. And this, this motley crew of fishermen and tax collectors, Levi, become the instrument by which God goes and brings the hope of the gospel to a needy world, making the nations pay attention, turning people's hearts towards the Lord. And you and I are meant to see that the church has a vital role. In fact, the call to make disciples is not given to parachurch organizations, and it's not given to individuals, 
per se. We often think in that way, but it's given to the church. And the reason why is that the good news of the gospel, in fact, I was thinking of the song you were just leading, Gabe and family and crew, um, that I could imagine Levi and the tax collectors singing that song against the backdrop of a Jewish religious hostility that there they are singing, oh, how he loves us, and the greatness of his affections towards me. And you might not be able to get out with your energy on the heights of those notes, but I, I do want you to think this morning, as we are preparing to take communion today, that you would think that God has marvelously, in Jesus Christ, brought you out of darkness into light, out of death into life, out of not being a people into being a royal priesthood and a holy nation through which people can hear and see the reality of the gospel. The thing I love about the church, I believe, of, I'm convinced about the church, is that the church is the body that God has elected to use to declare the hope of the gospel and to display the hope of the gospel. And we need that. We need to hear it, and we need to see it and experience it. And so the Holy Spirit has come. And because of brokenness and because of uh, the, the history of church and experiences, many of us have lost our vision of what the church is meant to be, right? We have guarded ourselves. We, we, we kind of resonate more uh, commonly with individualistic Western Christianity than corporate. It's easier for me to go do my thing for Jesus than for me to go with you to do our thing for Jesus. But the reality is God has designed and intended to bring a people together for himself, an unlikely group of people for himself, in order that we might give people a context to hear and experience the gospel. We've been called to be a gospel-centered family. So let me read a couple of quotes to you. I have a quote from uh, Robbie Galati on Christ's mission to make disciples of all nations. I'm going to just slightly disagree with him. I agree with his principle, but I'm going to expand it this morning. He says, when the church becomes an end in itself, it ends. When Sunday school, as great as it is, becomes an end in itself, it ends. When small group ministry becomes an end in itself, it ends. When the worship service becomes an end in itself, it ends. What we need is for discipleship to become the goal. Then the process never ends. The process is fluid. It's moving. It's active. It's a living thing. It must continue to go on. Every disciple must make disciples. That's true, right? We've been called to go into the world to make disciples. I want to add to that, though, that it is the church that's been given that call. As a church, we've been called to go make disciples, to manifest the gospel while we declare the gospel. So uh, Tim Chesters and Steve Timmis says this night, we need a culture of daily and mutual discipleship. Structures and programs cannot create it it requires the sharing of lives with gospel intentionality. You know, one of the challenges, and I'm sure the other guys, pastors and, and leaders would agree with me, one of the challenges of being a pastor is we are regularly interacting with individuals who make up our body who are aching for the experience of seeing and feeling the reality of the gospel in community. 
that that's, that goes on all the time, that we often experience our grief, our family struggles, our marriage challenges, our singleness, all of those things. We often experience that in an acute experience of isolation and solitude, aloneness. There's nothing more unchristian than living out your Christian life alone. Now, thank God we are never alone because God said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But we are called to be a family that manifests and articulates the gospel to one another. So let me, let me reiterate our uh, church vision statement. Waterbrook uh, Water seeks to be, and I, 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 I'm emphasizing the seeks to be because what I want to do at the beginning of the year is I'm asking you to pray over your life and our life together that we might become what we are saying we are becoming. When we set out a vision statement, we're setting a biblical vision that we are aiming for and praying that by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, we might become. So Waterbrook seeks to be a gospel-centered, multi-ethnic family. I just want you to think about that. A gospel-centered, multi-ethnic family. We're a family centered around the gospel, captivated by Jesus compelled to love others. Steve last week did a great job just in teaching us from Thessalonians what loving one another is and called to make disciples for the glory of God. That's our calling. That's our calling in our families. That's our calling in our community to make disciples. But I want to pull back and ask the question this morning. If we're called to make disciples and we are a gospel-centered family, why do we use that phraseology? What is gospel-centeredness? How does it shape and encourage the the development and foster disciple-making in the church? This text is designed to teach us that. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus is revealing to us this new community that he's building. And there's obviously a counter-reaction to it for the people who are watching because he's picking people that have been already excluded. He is embracing people who are already living under the shadow of condemnation of shame and sin. Here he is pulling a people together because in the pulling of these people together with the gospel, the announcement of good news, they will so palpably feel it and with community and and conversation, we echo it back to one another that we will hear and feel the hope of the gospel, hopefully by God's grace, so that when we talk to people who are on the outside, who are burdened with sin and guilt and shame. We don't talk like theoretical scholars from some distant school, but we look them in the eye and say, man, we are a struggling people who have an all-sufficient Savior. And so what I want you to see in the text this morning, I want to plant, I want you to pray over this morning, is what in this text uh, do we see of ourselves in our desperate need in the calling of Levi, in Jesus' encounter with the criticism over how his disciples don't fast and pray the way that they do. In the parable of the new wine, here's what I want to tell you. Jesus is the new wine that we need for the new year. That he has come to bring us uh, a fresh vision of what we can be in and because of him. So let's begin with this. Uh, Here's the first thing that's really clear in this context. You know what I need? You know what you need in order to 
to become the church, become the people, to live the life. We need the grace of God repeated to us, revealed to us over and over and over again. Do you ever get tired of hearing about the grace of God? And you see, that's what's, go- that's what's going on in this context, that what we have is Levi encountering. So here's Levi's conversion. That's what we have here. And I, I'm going to put here, we all desperately need a family where the grace of the gospel is continually reiterated, joyfully celebrated, and lovingly manifested. Got that? So we need it to be continually preached. In one of the lines, I forget which song we just sang, one of the lines said, I need to preach the gospel to myself daily, right? I need to preach to myself. Every week in our weariness and struggle, we need to hear the gospel being spoken over us. We also need, this context is this great celebration with Levi. Levi calls in a bunch of tax collecting sinners around with him, and where he was once ashamed of his sin and seen as an outsider, he's no longer ashamed of his carrying the burden, and he's not ashamed of his Savior either. Christ has radically transformed him, and he celebrates. So there's a celebration here, and it is lovingly manifested. So let me walk through. Here's, here, in this context, Jesus is, all of chapter 5, uh, encountering criticisms. And the criticisms that are coming against him is his affiliation, his association, his eating with, his practices where he identifies with sinners. And in the Jewish tradition, and especially, you know, some of the commentators say it was becoming increasingly, in conservative Judaism at this time, increasingly emphasized that the separation between the people of God and the world was to be clear, the lines were to be clearly defined. Jesus suddenly blows those lines away. And so he comes under criticism here because he is eating with tax collectors. Listen to what it says in verse 27. After this, after he had uh, healed the lame man and after he had touched the leper, it says, after this he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Isn't that a pretty succinct description of a conversion (laughs) i want to say it is written that way because the point of us the point of the text is not um, in in luke's mind for us to look at uh, levi and say oh what did levi do here we are to look at jesus and see what jesus has done here and what jesus has done first of all is he is called levi out of his sin and out of his shame. This is the call. Here's what we see in this text. Jesus says these words, follow me. What does Levi do? He follows him. That's what doctrinally we call the effectual call of Christ. Christ, all he has to say is, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus will rise from the dead and follow him. That's what's going on in this text of Scripture. This passage of Scripture is Christ effectuate. This, this should encourage us. Why, why do we preach the gospel? Why do we sing the gospel? Why do we do church on sunny days and cloudy days and weary days and sorrowful days and days when we feel on the top of the mountain? And why do we worship when we're on the bottom of the mountain? Because 
It just takes a sentence. It just takes one passage of scripture. It just is Jesus taking the singing, the preaching, the worship of his people, the conversations of the people of God where the gospel announcement is clear. Christ Jesus, as he will say, came into the world to save sinners. Can Jesus save anybody at any time whenever he wants? He can. He can. So I want to tell you that at the beginning of 2022. Jesus can save anybody by the word of his mouth as he wills. And we need to remind each other of that. We need to announce that to each other. It is not by our strength. It is not by our flesh. It is not by our wisdom, but it is by his spirit that he can do this. So we start out with this call, this succinct call, follow me. And then we have... I'm going to call this Levi's conversion. So his call is grace. There's nothing in this where we're to look at him and say, oh, he was more inclined than others. Not at all. And, 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 and that's reiterated in the scriptures. Paul will say, not too many of you were smart, wise, uh, people of significance. He chose the least. This is Christ coming and making it clear that he, as he will, can save whomever he will because his blood was shed for sinners and so christ is able to say don't you need to hear that this morning some of you need to hear this morning this maybe for some of you this was a tough christmas or a tough holiday season and people around you maybe in your own family maybe it's yourself and your struggle you just think man how stubborn and hard-hearted can i be jesus is greater than all of that and he is able to say with the word of his mouth. We need to sing that to each other. We need to say that to one another. That's why Waterbrook is a gospel-centered family. It's a family where we say to each other, you're struggling, the, diff- the situation is difficult. This is the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Not only was his call grace, but his conversion was grace. Notice in verse 28, it says, and leaving what? everything he rose and followed him and that word followed him when it said jesus says follow me when it says followed him is in a continuous form of the verb which means he just didn't you know do a one-time leave this is a life decision this is the rest of his life this is what he is done he has heard the call of christ and he's got up and he's followed he's given his life this is a conversion experience which is a marvelous reality that that this situation in which we find levi is that suddenly all of the guilt and shame that israel could throw at him all of the old testament law with its standards all of the you know the hostile oppression he would have been seen as a tax collector uh, he would have been seen even by the disciples. He, he was the one who would tax Peter, James, and John. <laughs> this team that he's built. These guys, all of their, uh, you know, disgust over him, all their sticking up their nose and walking away and walking far around um, did not move him to leave his tax collecting life. It did not move him to change at all. But one word of Jesus, follow me changed his heart changed his life and this this call of jesus to us can you imagine this the savior of the world coming to one of the most despised men in his community one of the most rejected men one of the most uh, guilty probably shamed men 
Jesus comes and says, you're the one I want. And he comes. And he leaves everything. I'll tell you, that's not an easy thing. That's not a human thing to leave everything, everything that he held him, everything that, that, that he had poured himself into, everything that owned him. Now, did, do I believe that Matthew fully understood all the, uh, the nuances of what the call of the cross was? No, he would discover that as he went. But the leaving was real. And the call was effectual. And he was a changed man. And shame and baggage and history and idols were left behind because Jesus was worth it all. Just the voice of Jesus. Isn't that good? And you and I need to pray over 2022 that there would be coming streams by the voice and the beckoning of Jesus out of our homes, out of our families, out of our networks of people at work, out of our neighborhoods, that there would be a stream of people would hear the call of Jesus and leave it all because he's worthy and he's worth it. Only Jesus can do that. I'm really excited uh, for 2022 because of the gospel, because God has called us as a church to be a collective group that announced the gospel, and then we sit and watch and be amazed at what he's able to do. I also want to say that Levi's celebration was great. Notice this text, was great, sorry. Notice the text. And Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. Isn't that great? He didn't keep it to himself. He didn't carry shame into his new life. He was, he was no longer shackled by sin and guilt and shame. That was not his story anymore, but he was so set free. He didn't disconnect from his unbelieving community. He went out of them and he said, there is no more shame in my life. My sins are forgiven. I've been accepted by the Savior. The greatest news of my life is this one seated in the place of honor at my house. And he throws a celebration for Jesus. And I want that for us in 2022. You know, those of you, some of you are home from college. What a great liberty you have in all the pressures, <laughs> whether it's from faculty, whether it's from your peers, to walk into there and say, I have one who I love, who has loved me first, who's come into the world to save sinners, and I will not be ashamed. I will not be ashamed of him. I will. And, and, and when we do that, that's no, that's, that's no righteousness on my behalf. That is the mark of the gospel, having made its work on my life, where I am so convinced that the best thing about my life is a Savior who would set me free, that I'll tell the world gladly so that they might be set free. And we go along to people who are full of shame, full of peer pressure, trying to get their identity from everyone around. And we walk in and say, you don't have to do it anymore. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks. It only matters what he has done. And he has set us free. Isn't that good news? We need to hear that. We need to sing that. We need to celebrate it. J.C. Ryle says, nothing can happen to a man which ought to be a, such an occasion of joy as his conversion it is a far more important event than being married or coming of age or being made a nobleman or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is the passage from death to life. It's being made a king and a priest forever. It is adoption into the noblest of all families, the family of God. You could go on, right? 
Who are we that we should become the children of God? But that's what we are. That's who we are because of him. He has changed our destiny. He has changed our identity. He has changed our history. He has set us free. That is the greatest news. Craig Blomberg writes, as to the meaning of Jesus' behavior, the unifying theme that emerges is one that's called contagious holiness. (laughs) So they wouldn't eat together because why? You don't eat with tax collectors and sinners. They might infect you. There is someone who's going to infect you with grace. (laughs) Right, he's contagious with his holiness. This is like Jesus touching the leper, where you, everybody didn't want to touch him because he was unclean. Well, his purity is transferred to the leper. Here, his holiness is given to us. And so, uh, Jesus discloses not one instance of fearing con- contamination, whether moral or ritual, by associating with the wicked or the impure. Rather, he believes that his purity can rub off on them. And he hopes that his magnanimity toward them will lead them to heed his calls of discipleship. There is nothing more marvelous than to see someone who has considered themselves unclean and unworthy their whole life suddenly believing that Christ has made them whole, acceptable. There is nothing like that. I have this letter here. I just want to show you. This This letter fell out of a book this last week my granddaughter Ellie I think it was went upstairs and brought back brought downstairs a theology textbook (laughs) she wanted me to read to her she was uh she she had this heavy theology and she and I knew I, I didn't know at the time what I was I was playing along she drops the book on and I open it up and this letter is inside the book I haven't seen this letter in 20 some years and inside of it is a note from Mildred Maurer, and she writes to me that she has just turned 79 years old. And I met Mildred in the psych ward of the hospital. She was um, battling bipolar, and I was doing a worship service. I was just teaching. I had somebody lead singing, and I was doing some teaching, and we became friends. And she started coming to our house. We made muffins and tea when she would come. Faith did this for years, and then Marianne picked up on it later after we were married. And Mildred would come. My girls would know Mildred. Mildred would come. She did. She, she was a poet. She, was, she had her master's degree in French. She had been to the BAMP School of Fine Arts. She kept me uh, supplied regularly with the New Yorker magazine. She was sophisticated and thoughtful, you know, and she would come. She, she loved poetry, so she loved the Psalms. She did not believe in Jesus. And she, she did not like me reading from the Gospels. <laughs> she would come and say, if you want to, you can. I said, I want to, and I will. <laughs> and we would have tea and talk together and share our lives together. This went on for years. We would read the Psalms. I'd say, you know, that Psalm is pointing to Jesus. And she would smile at me and go and have tea. Well, years and years went by. Well, when she was 79, I forgot she was that old. She was walking down a street in Thunder Bay. She was walking down, and another young woman who was either on drugs or having psychological issues began to beat her up, knocked her down, and started kicking her in the head. So I don't know this is going on. I get the call. She's hospitalized. So I go to the hospital, and I see Mildred, and I go, she is banged up and bruised up, and I say, 
how are, how are you doing? And, and she looks at me, she says, I'm doing good. I go, what do you mean? She says, guess who showed up? And I said, I, I don't know. And she said, Jesus. She said, I was laying on the sidewalk and a bright light came over me and a man was standing over me and it was clearly Jesus. In that miraculous moment, from that time on, I could talk to her about Jesus. I, knew, I didn't do it. <laughs> it, was, it was this remarkable thing. I just kept reading and praying and presenting and hoping and inviting into our home. And in God's good time, he said, Mildred, come, leave everything and follow me. And in this letter, she has written a poem where she, in her poem she says, I, because of her fear over her own psychological issues, I don't want to hurt anyone in this process, but I do want to be part of the family. Isn't that great what Christ can do? Just by us seeking to announce Christ loves sinners. Her shame, she, was, she had suffered her shame and her indignity of having this issue. She had, she had terrible stories in her life. Very awful difficulties that contributed to all of this. But she found a people who loved her. Who believed in Christ who not only articulated the hope of Christ to her, but manifested the life of Christ to her, and somehow in all of that, the pleasure of Christ was the redeemer and rescuer. Isn't that what the church is about? So we have been called to announce the grace of God and to demonstrate it by celebrating and rejoicing and testifying amongst people, maybe for a long period of time, who don't hear us, who don't believe us, who can't swallow it, but it is the truest truth about me. And somehow Jesus comes along and says, I love to turn people's lives around. So that's the, the grace of God. The hope of the gospel is what we have to sing over one another. That we have to announce to uh, no, Look at the next complaint against Jesus in verse 33. It says, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Here you guys are, are partying, and Jesus said, well, I didn't come into the world to call the righteous. I came in to call sinners. Well, you guys are eating while we're fasting. We're praying, and you guys are like partying with all these sinners. What's going on here? This does not compute, is what they're saying. And Jesus makes this response. He says in verse 34, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now what he's saying there is, why do you fast and pray? You fast and pray because your sin has made a break in the, your covenant relationship with God. God is away from you. He's separated. So your fasting and praying is an ache and a longing over your alienation. God is far. God is distant. Some of you here this morning feel that about God right now. That God is so far away from you. So forgotten you. And Jesus is answering, I, I got to tell you something. The bridegroom is here. The reason why we're eating and drinking is Emmanuel. God is with us. The one you are waiting for, the one you're longing for has arrived and is here in the present. He said, one day, one day you, they will fast when I am taken away, when the bridegroom is removed. What's he talking about there? 
the crucifixion. He's anticipating the cross. One day they will be longing and grieving. That'll happen, but not right now. The bridegroom is here. But here's, here's the distinction I want you, uh, you to see this morning. There is a difference between fasting in the Old Covenant and fasting in the New Covenant. Fasting in the Old Covenant is a grieving and a seeking of God because we have been separated from God because of our sins. The covenant has been broken. We have been removed from God. It is a longing for what is lost. But the fasting and praying in the new covenant is a longing for what is gained. 